Human beings enjoyed center stage. It's almost as if parents would place their arms around their children and uh, po pointing up to the night sky and say, saying, see, the universe revolves around us. Uh, we stay put and the earth is applauded as an important, the important anchor of the whole universe. Human beings thinking we are the center of it all. But in 1543, a man called Copernicus begged to differ. He was asking questions like, why do the seasons change? Uh, and many others like those. And people often ignored him and even scoffed at him, telling him to forget his trivial questions. But Copernicus almost courageously cleared his throat and even pointed away to the sun to say, see the center of it all. I think that what Copernicus did uh, for humanity, uh, I think God does for our souls and our perspectives in this book of 1 Corinthians. We have a tendency to think that we are the center of it all. But really, what the Bible tells us, and what 1 Corinthians will tell us also, is that when heaven's stagehands direct the spotlight on the star of the show, as it were, here on earth and anywhere else. It doesn't, we don't need to squint. We don't think this light is going to shine on us. No, we know where the light shines. On Jesus Christ himself. He is the center of it all. If there was one thing that the Corinthians failed to recognize, I think it was this, that they were not the center of it all. They were, they were not humble they were not Christ-centered. In fact, they were a very proud church and very me-centered. And that's not just a problem specific to Corinth in those days. Uh, we experienced this as well. The church in Corinth, just to give you a bit of background, was a church in crisis. Not that they necessarily knew that. I mean, and they thought that they were the proverbial bee's knees. But the fact that they were discussing issues like, did the resurrection really happen? And since there was scandalous sexual sin and really quite out there, upfront idolatry, uh, they were indeed a church that was in crisis. Uh, Corinth itself uh, was a fascinating place. It was a big city, a cosmopolitan city that was bustling with activity. Uh, it was a very entrepreneurial place, ideal context for commerce, uh, situated between uh, two ports. It made people very wealthy. It, it, it had, of course, being in southern Greece, a very, uh, 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 it felt Hellenistic, but it had had quite an influence from Rome. Uh, Rome had basically sacked it 100 years before this was written. Another 30 or so years later, rebuilt the city and uh, fed it and nourished it so that it would grow and it became a city that was consumed with prestige, with influence, with acquiring wealth. It was a multi-religious city. There were various temples there, including a temple of Aphrodite. And their view was basically, the more gods you had, the better. Pray to each one if you want. It was also a bit of an entertainment capital. They had 18,000-seater stadium. Not sure you get that, Tynecastle. They loved music. They played uh, plays. Uh, 
uh, sports. Uh, it was known for being quite a hotbed of sexual immorality, it has to be said. Uh, we often have that uh, turn of phrase. Uh, you hear it sometimes, there is a, a certain stereotype attached to Essex girls. Uh, in some sense, that uh, if anyone was referring to someone, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this, <laughs> uh, you could be called a Corinthian girl, basically. Okay, You get what I'm talking about, don't you? It's okay. Good. Some do. I'm not going to explain it any more than that. So anyway, this city of Corinth is a city where in Acts chapter 18, Paul went to preach. Uh, he went there and he started work as a tent maker, which was, which was his trade, met up with a, a couple called Priscilla and Aquila and uh, preached the message of the gospel in the synagogue there, as was his custom. This was part of his second missionary journey. He was in kind of towards the end of a five-city tour. And he planted this church. At one point, he was a bit discouraged. In verses 9 to 11 of chapter 18, uh, in, uh, of chapter 18 of Acts, says that one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack or harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So he had 18 months of ministry there. He left, but very soon afterwards had to write a letter because he had heard about sexual immorality creeping into the church. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians, this letter we're going to study, three years after planting. For those of you who know your Bibles, we've got a letter of 2 Corinthians, so that wasn't the end of the matter. Uh, he actually wrote a tearful letter, which he refers to, which is now lost, we don't have it, which seems to have contained something of an ultimatum for them to, to receive and accept his authority. And then 2 Corinthians was written, and, and a, which was really Paul's heart on his sleeve, attempt to win back the affections of this church. So overall, what you have is a seven-year period of Paul trying to shepherd and encourage and teach this church in Corinth. Now, the Corinthians had sent a letter back to Paul after he had left with a list of questions we don't understand this, they were saying. And in addition, there were plenty of people who were coming, even from Chloe's household, with news saying, we don't know what's going on here. There are people who are descending into these kind of practices. We didn't think this was quite right. And we want you to address some of these issues. Now, some of you are here on church search. Okay, This is this thing where, that students do each year, at the start of each year, where... Uh, they go around different churches uh, to see what different churches are like. Is, is it kind of like a Christian version of wine tasting or something like that? You know, they, they go around and they're like, mm -hmm. you know, they take a little taste of that and see whether it's suitable for their palate, if, if you like. Um, but uh, imagine for a minute you go on a church search to first century Corinth. Picture it for yourself. You sit in on one of their services. Uh, you hear a member of their student team stand up and uh, tell you why you should join your church, why you should join the church, and from what they say, you're just stunned. Uh, you see the, the preachers, are proper wordsmiths, uh, wowing the congregation with their presence and their presentation, yet it's not hard to see that they really have lost their grip on the gospel. They see the cross as a sign of weakness and shame. 
they somehow think they've moved on from it, believing that spiritual power for the Christian life was, was not necessarily tied to a cross, but, but the development of their giftedness, which in their view personally was great. You would maybe have seen members fighting over the microphones because everybody had something to say, but without any real concern to help people in the pew understand what's being said. No, they said, no, no. This is for the spiritual. If you're spiritual, you'll understand it. Maybe the person sitting next to you would be welcoming enough. Hi, are you new here? You're going to love it here. Everybody's welcome, especially if you're pretty, gifted, and wealthy. One of our favorite taglines here in this church is, everything's permissible. We pride ourselves in our tolerance of other people's views and lifestyles. For example, we have a man worshiping with us who's sleeping with his stepmother. This is how comfortable we are with our freedom in Christ. We're not a perfect church, but we are the closest thing to perfection this side of heaven. I mean, they were boasting in themselves to that extent. But at the core, they were ungrateful for their leader. They were divisive. They were proud. They condoned sexual immorality. They were allowing people to get drunk at their meetings. It was chaotic. They were so enamored with their spiritual gifts. It was offensive to people who came in to hear the gospel. So what will Paul say to them? What will Paul say to this me-centered church? Let's turn on our Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And let's read verses 1 to 9. One Corinthians chapter one, verses one to nine. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. In all your speaking and in all your knowledge because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Amen. This is God's word. I think it's true to say that the beginning of 1 Corinthians, these verses that we've just read, provide something for us of uh, like a movie trailer, a teaser of all the issues that are, that are going to come out in the letter. And uh, I'm just going to uh, dance, if you like, through these pretty quickly tonight with complete confidence that we're going to deal with all these issues as we go along. But like most of Paul's letters, Paul begins just by noting his name uh, by naming those he's writing to and offering greetings to them. But Paul makes some strategic additions 
I think here when you do a comparative study of his introductions to other letters, you can see this isn't just an obligatory kind of uh, Paul to you greetings. No, there's, there's something in here. He's already beginning to teach them and to try and reorientate their perspective, if you like making that Copernican shift away from their very me-centered view to what they should have as a church, that every church should have a, a very Christ-centered view. So what I want us to do is just walk through some of the reminders that Paul offers here. And the first thing that Paul reminds them of in verse uh, 2, uh, verse 1, sorry, is of his apostleship. Now, as an apostle... That basically means that Paul was one who was sent to proclaim the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was, an apostle was uniquely called to do that because they were taught by and witnesses of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's doing straight from the off is that he's reminding them that God has put him in a place of authority. He's called by the will of God to be an apostle. So it's not his own idea. It's not something that he was voted into. Uh, He was appointed by God to this position. And of course, he says this because, as we'll see later in the letter, they are challenging and questioning his leadership. They're looking at the, 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 the leaders that they see in their culture around them, and they're summarizing, they're assuming that Paul is just some kind of unimpressive man. Uh, his speaking really wasn't that up to much. It didn't really seem that wise to keep on harping on about the weakness of, of Jesus on the cross. There are far more positive things, surely, to think about than just that, they thought. Paul didn't measure up in relation to their expectations. So he's underlining and reminding them of the authority that is conferred on him by the will of God. But more importantly, they were not only... These people were not only drifting from Paul, but even drifting from the gospel, as I've mentioned. He defends this apostleship, not just because, not because he is egotistical in some way, uh, but because he actually cares for their souls. He knows that if they reject him, uh, they fundamentally reject his teaching. So Paul reminds them of his apostleship by the will of God, based on God's prior choosing. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is that Paul reminds them that they are God's church. Verse 2 says, uh, addresses them as the church of God in Corinth. And again, this is significant. When you look at the way that Paul addresses other churches and other letters that he writes in the New Testament, you start to notice some subtle but important differences. Uh, For example, to the Thessalonians, he says to the church of the Thessalonians. But he doesn't say that here. No, he's wanting to remind them from the off, even in his introductory remarks, as to who it is they belong to. And one of the major issues, again, that, they, that, they will, that Paul will address later is that they're so imp- impressed by people and their performances that they will form factions and serve to divide the body of Christ based on the people that they follow. So one will say, as we see later on in chapter one, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I I follow Peter. Paul's saying, look, you're not Paul's church. You're, You're not Peter's church. You're God's church. He's reminding them who they belong to. So he reminds them of his apostleship. He reminds them who they belong to. And thirdly, reminds them that they are set apart 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, as verse 2 continues, called to be holy. That is, a call to be distinct, set apart for special use. He's saying, you are God's holy people. That's what you're called to. Uh, And Paul is saying this because he knows that they have got so much of the Corinthian culture in their hearts and their minds, Uh, their lives, their thinking, the things that they uh, place value on. It's all really culturally conditioned by their context. As one author has said, the problem was not that they were in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in them. And in many ways, they looked more like Corinth than they looked like God's people in Corinth. They needed their lives, though, to truly reflect God's holiness. That's what the church should do, should be holy as God is holy. But they're struggling with this. Uh, One author has said that they were called to a cross-centered, end-focused, life-changing thing called Christianity. So their whole lives should have been conditioned by what Jesus has done on the cross and by the fact that Jesus is coming back again. That causes them, should have caused them to enter into this new uh, theological and ethical world. So it affects what they believe. It affects how they live that out. But they... It seems, through 1 Corinthians, we see they have been rejecting that wisdom and turning back to the wisdom of their culture and the practices that they were used to practicing and calling that true Christian spirituality when in fact it was far from being spiritual at all. You see, part of their issue was that they thought that they could be Christians almost with a minimal amount of personal, social, theological disturbance, but they were wrong. So Paul reminds them that they're not to be like their city. They're to be culturally different. They are to be entirely set apart as for holy use. Uh, The word here is reminiscent of what you see in the Old Testament of Say, for example, Aaron and the Levites as a tribe or certain items and objects that were used by the people of God in the worship of God uh, in the temple, for example. These things were sanctified, set apart, made holy for God's purposes. And that's the way that Paul is going to encourage the Corinthians to see themselves set apart for God's special purpose. He also reminds them that they are, fourthly, They are just a small part of God's great mission. As we'll see in 1 Corinthians, as we walk through the letter, they had a very inflated view of themselves. They were a very puffed up church. They liked to boast in themselves for a whole host of reasons. In fact, they thought that even after being Christians for around three years, which is when this letter was written, that they had pretty much reached the pinnacle, you know, the heights of this Christian life. And really everybody should be looking to them as an example of what true Christianity, of what true spirituality was all about, because they were so gifted. They were so special. I mean, they thought they were speaking the very language of heaven. But Paul, again, even as part of his introductions, has changed them slightly to, from a normal greeting to actually try to teach them, to help almost bring them back down to earth and just to gain a a humble perspective on their lives. He says, 
in verse 2, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So spiritual pride has been causing them to think of themselves in Corinth as in some special category, specially gifted from the big city. But Paul says, so Paul throws in this little phrase just to remind them that they are just a small part of a far bigger, far more significant thing that God is doing throughout the nations. And they're far from being the only church. They're just a small part of God's great mission to take the gospel beyond borders and seas and continents to all nations. Uh, As if to say to them, if you get this, uh, it will humble you. It will help prevent this very me-centered focus and help get for yourself that proper, true, Christ-centered focus that we should have. The fifth thing Paul reminds them of is that everything that they have is given them by the grace of God. You can't miss at all, even in verses 4 to 9, as Paul turns towards thanksgiving, just how God-centered all of this is. Uh, He's not thanking them and praising them, even again, as Paul does in other letters, where even with the Thessalonians, he praises them for their faith, their hope and love that, uh, that is evident in their labors and in their endurance through suffering and things like that. There's nothing that is pinned on the Corinthians here. Rather, uh, Paul is giving praise and thanksgiving to God and to God alone. Uh, and it's, it's not hard to see that even as you look through the first nine verses, that everything that you see in here is, is done by God and fulfilled through Jesus Christ the Son. Uh, you're not allowed to read 1 Corinthians 1 to 9 or 1 Corinthians as a whole letter and for, you know, for people in Corinth or in any other church anywhere else and think, wow, aren't we amazing? You know, we're super. We've done all these things. No, Paul says in verse 4, I always thank God for you because of what? His grace given you in Christ Jesus. In him... You have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Do you see what Paul's doing here again? He is undoing their pride. It's designed, this thanksgiving is designed to make much of God and his grace and chip away at the arrogance of the Corinthians. He's basically told us that God calls God sets apart. God gives grace and peace. God gives these gifts of knowledge and speech. That God is the one who enriches. And all through and in and because of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That because of his cross work, because of his substitutionary death on the cross, and because of his resurrection from the dead three days later, the privileges... And the experiences that the Corinthian church know have been won for them through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the very things that they consider of lesser importance. So Paul again is working here to teach them as well as giving thanks to God genuinely for these gifts. He is working to teach them to try and adjust their thinking. To move them away from this me-centered perspective and to turn to a Christ-centered perspective. That's how they'll become a God-exalting, Christ-centered church. 
Maybe we're not that much different to Corinth. Maybe we're not careering into the same kind of sin in some sense. Uh, In some areas, we are. But we all know what it is to feel this kind of self-centered pride. And to want to make much of ourselves. We like to boast in our accomplishments. And we love for for other people to make much of us. But Paul is teaching them and us how we should truly view ourselves. You want to get a crystal clear view of life as God intends it for his church. You want to know what it is to be a church that is healthy and faithful. Then we need to let these reminders sink in. Because it's only in doing so that we'll truly understand what God has done for us in Christ. Is doing for us presently through Christ, and will do for us in the future, in and through Christ. You see, this grace that Paul is thanking God for is the very reason for Paul's thanksgiving. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking, well, thanksgiving is really quite out of place here concerning, you know, particularly in relation to the description of Corinth that we were given earlier. There really doesn't seem like much to give thanks for. But Paul can say here, I see evidence of God's grace among you. In the past, in the present. And because I see those things, it gives me great confidence for your future. So what specifically does he see? Well, that their past story is a story of God's grace. You've been called out of the world to belong to God and to be holy. You received it not because you were super spiritual or because you were particularly worthy to be a part of God's set-apart people, but because God opened your heart to the gospel and he was gracious enough to send Paul to Corinth to preach. So their past is a story of God's grace. Their present is a story of God's grace as well. It is remarkable that Paul in his intro here thanks God for these spiritual gifts. And he's, he's able to do that because we have to understand that in Corinth, the problem, the gifts are not the problem, but the Corinthian abuse of the gifts is the problem. And the Corinthians' attitude towards these gifts, that's the problem. And these problems stem from the fact that they have forgotten how they came To have these gifts. These gifts came as an expression of God's grace towards them. They are gifts of grace. And God confirmed the gospel in them by giving them these gifts. Actually, Paul ties it to both the preaching of the gospel and the message he preached. So, again, it's an affirmation of his authority as an apostle and a confirmation uh, of his credibility as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is encouraging them to remember these things because they are so prone to see their gifts as the ultimate revealing of what God is doing in the world. And again, through that, God, uh, Paul shifts their perspective from a very me-centered to a God-centered, Christ-centered perspective. And of course, their future is a story of grace yet to come. 
We see this in verses 8 and 9. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Is faithful. What is Paul doing? Again, verse after verse after verse, explaining, showing them that their confidence for this journey should not be in themselves. It should be in Christ. And it should be in God's grace. He wants them to live then in anticipation of this final day and realize that the only reason that we will have any hope for standing blameless on that final day is that God is faithful. It's not that we have been faithful. It's that God is faithful. With these reminders, I believe Paul wants to point us to, early on in this letter, the very centrality of our Lord Jesus Christ, to see how the gospel transforms our perspective on life. Because without that gospel, the past is only about what we've done. And the present is only about what we can do on our own strength. And the future, well, it'll all be down to us. And, well, that sounds pretty hopeless without Christ and his grace, doesn't it? But with this gospel, a right understanding of the gospel, a right perspective as a gathering of believers, as a local church, will serve us when we realize that it's, it's not about me, it's not about us, it's about Jesus Christ. Everything, it's about him. We see Christ mentioned in here 11 times in nine verses, 66 times in the whole letter. And if the Corinthians, and if we can grasp this Christ-centered perspective, then they'll recognize that actually they, they have no grounds for, for patting themselves on the back. No grounds for boasting in themselves and their own efforts. No, they will boast only in the Lord and give him all the glory as we should. And the reason. The reason why the Apostle Paul can then thank God for them is that he has this Christ-centered perspective even on the Corinthian church despite its mess, despite the difficulties. So how might we benefit then from applying these reminders to our life together as a church? What kind of difference does it make for us when we, as we seek to be a Christ-centered church. Well, it might change the way we view one another, which then might change the way we relate to one another, which might then cause our love for one another to increase. Because it's very easy to look at the Corinthians and just think, what a mess, you know. If you're on a church search, what are you going to say? You know, run! <laughs> you know, don't join them. But no, Paul is able to see evidences of God's grace in their midst. And it's easy for us not just to look at Corinth and see mess 
and difficulties and obstacles, sometimes it's easy to do that with one another, even in a local church, where we look and see all the areas where other people should change, the kind of areas where we would change if we were in their position and the like. And often, all the while, blissfully ignorant of all the areas in our lives where we need to change. What difference might it make to us to obtain a Christ-centered perspective? To want others, when they look at you, to have a Christ-centered perspective. There's a frightening relevance, I think, in this whole book for us. Uh, We live in Corinth. Uh, Edinburgh is... 21st century version of Corinth as far as I can see it. And we have people who need to hear this message of the gospel but whose hearts are completely tied up in the same kind of knots that the Corinthians experienced. Idolatry. They're worshipping other things. They might not be bowing down to Aphrodite but they're certainly worshipping money, sex and power. Sexual immorality is a big deal in in Corinth and in the Corinthian church and it's a big deal here. Uh, We have a message of God's grace. The God who transforms lives, who calls people out of their darkness, the darkness of their sin and into his wonderful light, into the kingdom of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have grace, in whom we have redemption. And I wonder if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. Do you know that that those things that are described in Corinth, things that you might associate with and think, well, that, that kind of describes some of the things that I'm pursuing in my life, the kind of things that I enjoy pursuing in, in life. Well, these are the things that God calls people out of in order to know what it is to truly live to truly know his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross to give us, to bring forgiveness for all of those sins, that we might have new life with him. And I wonder if you might put your faith and trust in him and recognize the way that is opened up for us through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and the great grace of God that welcomes us despite our sinfulness when we come with believing hearts that trust in Jesus. I pray that you will do that and that this book of 1 Corinthians will be a blessing to us over these coming months. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to fend off these desires for self-centeredness and to truly remember uh, who you are and what you have done for us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace and the mercy and the peace that are ours in him, that he calls us, he has called us in the past uh, to know his forgiveness and grace, that he blesses us in the present with life and breath and with gifts that we may do your work as your church, Uh, that he enables us by his spirit to live lives that are distinct from our culture, not like it. 
and that our hope, Lord God, for the future is entirely dependent upon him. I thank you that it is through him and through the cross that we have the hope of being blameless on that final day. Thank you for such grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.